Well, I have really wrestled with what to do tonight and this is the third version, this is the third different message that I had thought I was going to bring. So it's one of those things that I'll get to the end and you can tell me if I got it right or not. <laughs> anyway, um, nervous laughter. So um, I just really, the sense I really get, this is a bizarre, very bizarre feeling. Uh, in the, the sense that I get is that um, this is, and this is not I'm blowing one's own trumpet. We, we used to meet in a, in a build like this in the Frontier Centre near Bedford and we used to meet as a church in a building just like you were meeting in a church like this and then we outgrew that and then our leaders would come here for the leaders weekend away and then we outgrew that and and then our and 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 now we can't even fit in that. And I just feel like there's something about what God is doing. That this is a, uh, a, a, a kind of you're you're on the same journey that we've been on of dramatic um, growth. And that you who are today you're part of the church. Some of you are leading. Actually, you're all going to be called to be leading the church because God's going to bring loads of people into this community. And I felt like there's just an acceleration of growth. It's not just about the building. I feel like it's prophetic about what's God's doing in Solihull and, in, and with you guys. And so what I want to do tonight is just to give you some tools because I feel the church is largely unequipped to deal with the life that God brings amongst us. I remember an illustration I, I spoke, um, David Devonosh asked me to speak some years ago at Brighton and I did a session on walking in freedom and I just gave two simple tools that we would use to walk in, walk in freedom and it was all leaders, 350 leaders in the room and at the end of it I said right if you, and I was a bit naive I think but because at the end of it I said now if you want to come forward for me if you feel like you are being uh, you've got some an area of freedom in your life and you want to come forward for prayer why don't you come forward well 150 people came forward out of the 350 and I had a ministry team of eight <laughs> and it was just I mean some of these guys you know that it was just ballistic I mean it just went there was bodies everywhere it was just kind of holy chaos and it was really exciting on the one hand but really sad on the other hand because I was thinking gosh we need to upskill the church to be able to, isn't most of the New Testament is about one anothering, isn't it? And yet many churches, the, the, uh, if you want some freedom, you kind of have to go to the specialist. And we were like that. You had to go to the specialist and that specialist have got a very long queue of people who want to see them. Isn't, isn't that right? Anyone know that experience? Got a very long queue of people who want to see them. But I, I believe we're in a day where God is wanting to upskill the church so that we can walk, as the New Testament does, in one anothering. Actually, we can, now there's always a place for specialists but actually we uh, can help one another walk into freedom and live in the freedom that Christ has purchased as a community uh, together. And so I want to just tonight give you two of the key areas that I believe that we need to walk in freedom ourselves but also be equipped to help other people walk into freedom. And I want to give this to you because I feel like in the, the days and the weeks and the months to come you are going to be walking other people through the same stuff. Okay? So some of this may be stuff you've known or heard before but I just want to give you the found, it's almost like foundation stones of things that we would say everyone in the King's Arms needs to know this stuff. This is like the, the foundations that we build our church on because Christ came to set free those who are oppressed. He came to bind up broken hearts. And so we need to be those. We need to live in that place. And, I, and, I, and the reality is what I've seen is that in the church there's kind of two extremes. You've got on the one hand you've got what I would call, it's translation from the original Greek, Christian head in the sandism. 
And what it is, is basically Christians should think, look, I, I don't, I'm not worried about all that hard stuff. You know, Jesus went to the cross, we're post the cross now, and, you know, I, I'm just going to walk in, I, I'm just going to walk in the light of that. I don't need to worry about it. And it's literally just stick your head in the sand. And what you see actually in the New Testament is not that, is not that. But on the other hand, you've got, on the other extreme, you've got, um, what I would call, again, a translation from the Greek, Christian annoying super spiritualism. And, and, and that is, that is Christians who, you know, that, you know, there's a demon behind every bush, and you, you cough and they ask you, you know, uh, how was your relationship with your father? Uh, and, and everything, and everything becomes around, you know, there's this continual journey to freedom and healing, and it's continually just stuck on the inside. And I'm believing for a church that walks the road of the radical middle, that actually we deal with the stuff. This is what you see modelled by Jesus. You deal with the stuff when it comes up. You know, sometimes even in the middle of preaching, and he drives out a demon out of someone, and then just kind of carries on. You deal with it when it comes up, but actually, then you get on with kingdom business. Isn't that what we should do? It's neither sticking our head in the sand nor just being overly obsessed. We deal, we set people free, we walk in freedom ourselves and then we get on with the job because there's a world out there to save. And we need to equip the church, the whole church, because I tell you what, the people who are coming through the doors are more and more broken. They are more and more wounded. The people who are specialists in this stuff are just not able to cope with the demand, even for the church as it is today, let alone with the church of 10 years' time, who are so, so messed up in so many different ways. And so that's what I want to do tonight, um, just to take you through these two things. I want to walk, look at, firstly, how do we deal with ungodly beliefs? The, the scriptures talk about that, a massive area of freedom. And secondly, how do we deal with, uh, with heart wounds? How do we get heart wounds healed up? And this will be the foundation, really, for you guys to walk in it yourself, but also to help other people. And why don't you just uh, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm really good, glad Simon chose this talk. I think he made the right choice. It, it just encouraged me. It just encouraged me. <laughs> so... So here we go. So it's, I mean, what we're going to do is we're going to do 20, we're going to do 20 minutes on each, okay? And so Caroline, you can keep me on that. 20 minutes on each, and then we are going to pray after each one. This is going to be equipping and also releasing. Uh, God is going to break out. I've really got faith that He's going to do stuff in us as we also get equipped. So. What's the foundations for dealing with ungodly beliefs? What is an ungodly belief? It's, it's any decision, belief or attitude that doesn't agree with God, his word, his nature or character. And you know everyone to some extent lives with ungodly beliefs. <laughs> Everyone lives with things in their minds, things in their thinking that are not godly. Um, and you see that in, in, in the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's writing to mature Christians, actually one of the most mature churches that he wrote to, and yet he says to them, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an ongoing journey, this renewal of the mind, of getting this junk, these lies that we have believed, out of our heads and out of our hearts. And the thing is, when we become a Christian, many of these things get eroded. They get eradicated. Who, who just, when you became a Christian, some things, your thinking just changed immediately. Any, anyone experienced that? Three of you. Okay, excellent. Uh, many, many times our thinking just changes Im- immediately, but some of these things that we think don't change uh, uh, in the same way. James 1 writes this, let him, I re- referenced it this morning, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Exactly the same concept. Writing to the church, saying it's possible to have two lines of thought.
thought running through your head. Who could relate to my story this morning of one minute you're praying one thing and believing one thing and the next you're praying and believing another. It's, it's how we are, isn't it? And it's time for us to learn to battle and renew our minds from this stuff. Where do these ungodly beliefs come from? What, where, do we get, where do they come in? Typically they come in very early. Childhood is often the way that they come in. Um, you know, the, the, the ungodly belief um, that a child takes on will depend on the, the personality makeup of the child. So uh, a daughter who's, not, uh, who's neglected by a father, who's not praised, who's not affirmed, who's not told she's beautiful, who's not embraced, she can develop the ungodly belief, I'm worthless, there's no points, men will never be attracted to me. I've met women like that who are married and don't believe their husbands are attracted to them. <laughs> they live under this. But equally, she can go down the other route and develop the ungodly belief, Dad doesn't think I'm attractive, I'll show him that men are attracted to me. And she goes down a provocative, sexualized lifestyle, living out of this ungodly belief that, that, she, that men aren't attracted to her and doing everything to prove that they are, to prove that her father was wrong. It actually just depends on the personality of the child as to how this, uh, this develops. Some ungodly beliefs develop from actual parental training. And so it's recognising that sometimes parents have sewn stuff in. I mean, our worst story of this was uh, uh, a lady that I was praying with and her brother, when he was like uh, 10, he was standing on a wall and um, it was a high wall, like six foot wall, and on a, over a pavement. And he'd climbed up there somehow and his dad said to him, jump son, I'll catch you. And the boy said, dad, it's too high, I'll hurt myself. He said, son, I'll catch you, don't worry, I'll jump. He said, dad, I'm really scared, I don't want to. He said, son, jump and I'll catch you. So the boy jumped and the dad stepped back and let him hit the deck. And as he's laying on the floor in agony, both of his legs in agony, laying on the floor crying, his dad steps over him and said, son, let that be a lesson, don't trust anyone. And that was what it went. Now, we were praying with his sister 50 years or 45 years later. Not even, the, I don't even know the, the brother. We're praying with his sister, and she was breaking off this lie. Nobody can trust, nobody can be trusted, nobody can be trusted. Now, you probably haven't, or you may have experienced an extreme example like that, but all of us experience degrees of that kind of stuff actually trained in. Repetition often reinforces uh, this stuff. And, and I just want to give you some illustrations of the sorts of, of areas that uh, ungodly beliefs hook into our hearts and the lives of believers. The whole area of rejection is a, is a massive one. I don't belong, no one cares about me, I'll always be lonely, trust no one. Of course, Romans 8 talks about this. You've been adopted into God's family. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you. Hebrews 2, you can trust many people, but I will put my trust in him. This, this reality of, of God rejecting us has been broken at the cross, but so often it gets stuck in our mind, this lie that we have been rejected at some level is in our mind and deep often in our hearts. You notice that uh, Jesus, the only time actually it's recorded that he called God Abba, Father, Papa, this intimate word is where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> at the point of almost his greatest rejection, at the point of where the relationship with the Father was under the most the greatest strain it's at that point that he calls on father in the most intimate way abba father and yet what happens many of us in those vulnerable moments what do we do we run we run from god and we conform this idea that we have been rejected the whole idea of, of guilt and shame 
I've been too bad to receive anything from God. I've done this thing that's wrong. You know, many, many believers, I prayed with a guy the other day, been a Christian many, many years, but lived under this shame because his previous marriage had, been bro- had broken up through adultery and he'd never told his subsequent second wife that that's why the first marriage had broken up. And he was living under this shame. Nobody knew. He'd never told anyone before. He didn't intend to tell me. It just came out of his mouth that that's what happened. And he'd been, he's a believer, faithful member of the church, you know, coming on Sunday, serving, and yet in his heart is this lie. Is this lie. If people knew this, they wouldn't accept me. This guilt and shame gets into our heads. Performance, my value is in what I do. People love me because of what I give. If I fail, I won't be loved. And here's a big one. If I'm busy, then I'm valuable. Oof. That's a big one. If I'm busy, then I'm value, valuable. How are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm busy. It's almost like you can't reply the opposite. Has anyone ever felt that tension? You've literally been doing nothing all day and someone asks you how you are. How you been? How's your day been? And you feel guilty for saying you've done nothing. You feel like it would be... So you make something up, don't you? You're like, oh, well, you know, I've had lots of... You know, or, or, or you justify it by saying, oh, I've been so busy, I just had a rest day today. You've got to justify that you didn't do anything today, haven't you? Anyone notice that? Attention, it's just, just, thank you. The, the, honest, the honest New Zealanders on the front row, but the rest of you are. <laughs> the, the, we justify because why? To be not busy equals to be not valuable because of this drive of, of performance. If I'm busy, then I'm valuable. You know, who's ever replied to someone, Where, what did you do today? Oh, do you know, absolutely nothing. I laid around, I did nothing, I got up at 11. I just, it was just such a lazy, slow day. I felt no... Anyone ever said that to anyone? Even if that's what you did. Oh, some of you have. All right, well, you're free from this. You can pray for the rest of it. Um, control. Stop conflict at any cost. Keep control and you won't get hurt. If I'm organised, it will be okay. If I'm organised, it will be okay. So many administrators with a great gift of administration live actually out of a place of a lie, which is this. They got their skills because they live from a place of if I'm organised, then everything will be okay. If I just keep all the boxes ticked, then it will be okay. And actually, you might be given a great skill of administration, of administration, but if it gets mixed with that lie, it becomes toxic and will not achieve the full kingdom results that you want to, that God wants to see in you. Control is such a big area. I mean, I, I, for me, it was a massive area. I remember one time uh, in a meeting, I, and I, put, um, I went to the, the, the speaker who I'd invited, and I was nervous. It was the first time we'd done a conference like this. I was nervous about it, and I went to put the microphone on... Um, uh, this guy, and as I did in this next session, I said, I made a joke and I said, um, it, th- don't worry, you can speak as long as you like because this thing will record forever. Because he'd spoken for two and a half hours in the previous meeting. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Rob's, Rob's having a hard time. Uh, <laughs> he's spoken for two and a half hours, so don't worry, it will record as long as you like. Um, uh, this thing will record forever. You can speak as long as you like, this thing will record forever. Well, and, I, and, I, and everyone laughed and I laughed and he kind of laughed and, uh, and I went to sit down and as I sat down God said to me you've got a spirit of control lie on the floor so I was like Lord let's deal with this later this really is not the right time it's really, I was on the front row I was like let's deal with this later said, no no you've got a spirit of control lie on the floor lie on the floor now 
So I was like, oh no, if I don't do it, I'm going to feel guilty. And, uh, so I was like, okay. So I slid off my chair as discreetly as I possibly could and lay on the floor. But I could feel all the eyes on me. It's like, what's he doing? What is he doing on the floor? He's meant to be hosting the meeting. He's laying on the floor. Anyway, well, this guy was staying at my house and I went round to his house and... So he was staying at my house, and as he came home, and I, I just confessed, look, you know, when I put the microphone on, actually, I realised it was control, it wasn't really a joke, it was, what well, it was, kind of at your expense, uh, and um, I'm just so sorry, I'm just so sorry, and he just said, my poor, poor boy, and put his arms around me, and just, just em- embraced me, and I... I'd got deliverance from a spirit of control in my kitchen. Fortunately, I had a tile floor, so it was easy to clean up. Uh, But but this freedom, this ungodly belief mixed with the demonic control had held me in this bondage. Physical identity stuff. I'm I'm ugly. I can't lose weight. I can't gain weight. If only I'd looked different, my life would have been better, etc., etc. The saddest one for me was a a lady. She'd um, She'd been raped. And her ungodly belief, well, she was a beautiful woman, but her ungodly belief was, if I'd have been born ugly, this would never have happened to me. She was denying the very gift that God had given her through a lie, because she was blind. You know, if I'd been born ugly, this would never have happened to me, and just not able to enjoy who she was at all because of this demonic lie that had got into her head through her experience. But many of, many of us live like this. I should have been born a boy, or I should have been born a girl, or something about your physicality. I'm too fat, I'm too short, I'm too... Do you know, the, any, I, don't, I haven't met anyone who doesn't think they're too something or other. <laughs> I haven't met anyone who doesn't think they're too some. The enemy just he'll throw anything. If you're tall, you're too tall. If you're short, you're too short. If you're if you're over if you're larger, he'll say you're overweight. If you're too if you're thin, he'll say you're too skinny. I haven't met anyone who he doesn't throw something about at you at your too something or other. And so we all live with this, and this lie needs to be broken. Safety, I must be guarded, or people will use it against me. Hide emotions. Uh, or feelings or people will think you're weak being open equals getting hurt that is endemic in our society being, if I'm open then I will be hurt if I'm open people will use it against me sometimes we've experienced that people have used it against us and so what happens that doubles the lie and makes us go even more inside where we perhaps share with a spouse and no one else so these whole areas, rejection, guilt and shame, performance, control, physical identity, safety, these lies get into our head, these ungodly beliefs, and they fuel the way that we live. You know, every action is produced by the thought that created it. And so your actions are produced by the thought that's in your head, and the thoughts that are in your head produce how you live. So if you've got ungodly beliefs in your head, you will live out those ungodly beliefs in some way or other. You know, um, really helped me over the summer on this whole area was uh, hearing a story um, from a guy called Graham Cook, who's a, a pastor, a preacher from the States, and he tells this story of where he was at a dinner party, and this lady was there, and they were talking, and she shared that... Um, she had got this job, this dream job that she'd longed to get. She'd kind of worked her whole career to work for this particular company. They were the best in their field. She got this job. And he said, you must be so excited. And she said, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I've always had this fear of failure, and I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I've been working my whole career for this job. I've finally got it. I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. So he said, what you're saying is that you're terrified of this job, that you're scared you're going to fail. She said, yeah. He said, well, what if you're not? 
He said, what you, she said, what do you mean? He said, well, what if, you know, what if you're not terrified? What if you're a little bit nervous? I mean, I mean what if you're anxious? I mean, that would be natural. It's a new job. But actually, you're, you're, a little bit, you're a little bit excited because, you know, this is a new opportunity and you've never done anything like this. What if you're, you're anxious? That would be, be natural, but you're, you're, you're a little bit excited. She said, you know, actually, that is probably closer to how I feel. I'm anxious and a little bit excited. He said, okay. So what you're telling me is you're anxious but a little bit excited. She said, yeah. She said, he said, well, what if you're not? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, what if, what if you're a little bit nervous? That would be natural. But actually, you're kind of expectant. Because these guys, they're the best in the world. They're not idiots. They say you can do the job. They've, you know, you're kind of expectant for what you're going to get. Because you're, you know, the, the, they've chosen you. They think you can do the job. And what if you're, just, you're not anxious and a little bit excited? You're actually uh, just a little bit nervous and, and expectant. She said, she, she said, actually, do you know what? That is closer to how I feel. I'm a little bit nervous and, and I'm actually expectant. He said, so what you're saying is you're a little bit nervous and expectant. She said, yeah, that is actually quite, that's quite close to how I feel. He said, what if you're not? <laughs> he said, what if actually you're, you've got a growing excitement because not only, what these guys don't know is that God has prepared him. God himself has prepared you for this role. That he has got this role for you and he's been building you for this role. And actually, you're probably going to change the way this company looks, that you are so good at what you do. What about if you've actually got a growing excitement and almost even a, a joy at this opportunity? She said, do you know what? I am going to start living out of that new identity. So I heard this story and it is totally changed. It's not to deny these ungodly beliefs are the way that we think, but it's to give us the possibility that we can change the way we think, that we don't have to lie, uh, come under them. I'd been off work for some months, and as Carol and I listened to this story, I was a bit down one day. She said, what's wrong? I said, oh, you know, I've just been thinking today, well, the team, the, el- the other elders are doing really good without me. What if I don't need me to come back? What if actually this is God putting me through this so that actually he's moving me on and someone else is going to lead the team? So she, so she said, what you're feeling is a bit depressed because you might not be needed in the church anymore. I said, yeah. She said, what if you're not? <laughs> but you know what? That's all it took to start me moving down a different path. A, few, a week or so after that, Caroline was taking a new interior design job for a company that she'd worked for before. I was saying, how are you feeling? She said, I'm so nervous about tomorrow. Um, I'm so nervous about how, you know, I'm nervous about what, what it's going to be. And this woman I've worked with, she was a nightmare last time. And I said, well, what you're saying is that you're nervous and, um, uh, and you're a little bit nervous about what's going to happen tomorrow. She said, yeah. I said, what if, you, what if you're not? <laughs> There's a possibility in God, isn't there, to be transformed in our thinking. It's not that we should deny those emotions, as Wendy has said this morning. There's a real valid place for that. But sometimes we get stuck in ungodly thinking. And we need to ask the question, what if I don't think that way? Or even, what if I don't have to think that way any longer? What if there's a new opportunity for me? Such a foundational thing. We need as communities to be helping one another in love. You know, not every time someone opens up their heart, you know, their heart to you, say, what if you're not? You know, it's just not like that. <laughs> but in love, to be provoking one another to transform our thinking. When lies about rejection, when lies about guilt and shame, when lies about performance, control, physical identity, safety, when they come into our thinking, when they come out of our mouths, 
We need to be equipped to help one another, to line ourselves up. You have the mind of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how we do it. This is the process that we're called to go on. And the transformation, this is part of that river flowing. We had one of our ladies, I was in the office with Wendy and this other lady, and she was working for me on a, on a job. And I asked her to phone this um, senior pastor of a, of a large church in the UK. And I said, just give him a call and ask him this question. Here's his number, just give him a call. And she looked at me, she's like, I can't, I can't do that. And I said, why not? I was just thinking she was meaning she was too busy or she had too much time. She said, I can't do that. I said, why not? She said, who am I to, to phone him? I looked at Wendy... And I said, I'm just going to leave you guys for a moment. I'll come back in a moment. I'll come back in a moment. Because we need to help one another, don't we? We need to help one another. Who are you? You're a daughter of the living God. You could phone anyone on the planet. Who are you to phone? He's a lowly senior church leader of a very large church. Who are you? You're a daughter of the Most High King. That's who you are. Phone anyone you like. <laughs> if you can get the number, phone them. <laughs> and she now randomly prank calls. No, no, she doesn't. <laughs> Why don't you just take a moment? Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? If you, if, if, if any, if any of those lies, you thought, you know what? I've been living under one of those lies, over one of those errors. Why don't you just stand to your feet, real quick? We're going to take a moment just to break the power of that, just to repent of that lie. And just to say, what if, what if you're not? Just stand to your feet quickly. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Just, just pray with me. If you're standing near someone or sitting near someone, just put a hand on a on a back or a shoulder. Thank you, Father. Just pray out me. Father, I repent of believing the lie about rejection. We'll just pray them all corporately together as a family, okay? I'm believing the lie about rejection. I repent of believing lies about guilt and shame. I repent about believing lies about performance. Thank you, God, that I don't have to be busy to be valuable. Thank you, God, that I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being. I repent of believing lies about control. That if I'm organized, I'll be okay. I repent about believing lies about my identity. Thank you, God, that you made me, me. I receive myself. Thank you that you made me a man or a woman. Fill in the blank. (laughs) Thank you, Father, that I am safe in you. I don't have to hide my emotions I don't have to stop 
I don't have to be closed to stop being hurt. Thank you, Father. And I want to say to this lie, what if I'm not? (laughs) What if I don't think that way? What if Jesus doesn't think that way? (laughs) So I don't have to think that way. Thank you, Father. As you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to wash you from all unrighteousness, to cleanse you from the power of that lie. And we just break off you now. All of those lies in Jesus' name, lies about rejection, any spirit of rejection associated, we break that off you. You are accepted in Christ, you are accepted in the Beloved, and we are receiving you now in the name of Christ. You are received and accepted in this family, and we break that off you. You don't have to be someone else to be accepted. Be yourself. Take the mask off so that people can love you as you are. We break those lies off of guilt and shame. No matter what you've done, it is not too much for Christ to forgive you. There is no secret too shameful for you to be embraced in the family of the all-loving God. We break that lie of shame off you. We break that lie of performance. You are a human being. You have not got to perform. You don't work for favour. You work from favour. You have his favour on you. You have his favour. You have his smile. Every morning before you get up, his smile is on you. Before you've done a single thing, his smile of favour is over you. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to prove yourself to him. He knows it all and he loves you. We break these lies off you in Jesus' name. We break lies of control and any spirit of control. Come out now and be released now in the mighty name of Jesus. Be free to walk in freedom. You are safe in him. You are secure in him. You are not an insecure being. You are not an insecure being. You are secure in him. You can stand with leaders You can stand with those in authority. You can look them in the eye. You can be secure to say what you think. You do not have to be someone else. Be who Christ has made you to be. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, God. She's getting some. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. (laughs) More Lord. More Lord. More Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. Well, we just take our seats. Let's thank God, shall we, for what he's doing. Thank you, Father. Okay, last little bit. Keep going, keep going. Give them more, Lord. Give them more. 
So last little bit, I want to talk about healing of the heart, healing of the heart, particularly one area that I'd love you to just uh, be equipped with the things that we've learned on this so that you can walk in freedom yourself and walk in freedom uh, and then bring others into freedom as well. You know, there was a, a, a woman we were praying for came out of Iran and um, she'd come to faith in Christ and after she did, her husband was a Muslim obviously, um, he uh, would openly... Uh, he was so incensed that she'd become a Christian that he would openly beat her in front of the kids, scream in her face, um, abusive all the time in the home and every after every meal. I mean, just constant, constant abuse. And then he would openly bring because she didn't respond to that, didn't you know recant after that. He would then br- he would bring other women into the home and sleep with them so that everyone knew what was going on in the, in their bed. That's how he treated her. And she came up to a comp- into Carolina conference, and um, and she said um, she responded to a session like that we were doing here. And Caroline said, "What can I pray for you for?" And she said, "The thing is," she said, "I just see his face all the time when I close my eyes. I can see his face in my face." She'd fled Iran up and after this, she'd left him behind, taking the kids and run. And she said, I see his face. And she said, when I, it's quiet. She said, I just hear the abuse that he would scream into my ear. I just hear it all the time. Just hear it all the time. And Caroline knew there was only one way for freedom for this woman. But how do you tell someone like that, you just got to forgive? <laughs> how do you tell someone like that? Jesus tells a story, Matthew 18. You've heard it before. Peter said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven and Jesus times. And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to sell, one was brought to him owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. Seven fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him. He said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on, all, on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers. The actual word used there is the tormentors until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The first step, the first foundation for living in freedom in the heart is forgiveness. And there are several things that we've learned about this on our journey. First is this, the illustration given by Jesus, 10,000 talents. In today's money, if it were a silver talent, that would be worth about 5 million quid. If it were a gold talent, that would be worth about 250 million pounds. That's what Jesus was talking about. What was owed to the servant was 100 denarii, which is about 8 pounds. So you start to get the picture, don't you, (laughs) of what Jesus is talking about. 250 million pounds on one hand, he was released of... What he demanded in payment was eight pounds. You start to get the picture of what Jesus is talking about. And it's this. Our immense unpayable debt of sin has been paid totally by grace. 
Your sin has been paid by grace. Ezekiel 25 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony of the law that I shall give you, and there I will meet you above the mercy seat. Right in that old picture of the ark was the picture of what we're talking about. God's saying, I'll put the law in the ark, but I will meet you where? On the level of the law? No. On the level of the mercy seat. Mercy triumphs over justice. And this is the message of the gospel, that God cannot meet us on the level of the law. We cannot meet God and look him in the eye on the level of the law. You've got to go above the law to the level of mercy if you want to meet with God. In Christ, we have been taken to that place. Get happy or tell somebody that you are happy, at least in part. God deals with our sin in this way and takes us to this uh, place. And, and even when our sin and sickness are related, sin isn't always related to sickness, but when it is, notice that Jesus says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Sin has such an endemic effect on mankind that sometimes our sin even has a, a result in physical infirmity. Not always, but sometimes. And it's so powerful, and we've seen that. I prayed with a, uh, a lady, um, she had uh, she'd been hit in a, a car accident, and she'd been hit um, by this car and had chronic back pain for that point on for like 15 years she'd not been able to sit in the ch- on the floor with her kids she had so much anger and bitterness she'd a- her husband her husband asked me to pray for her for a back condition and then as we talked this whole stuff came out about how it would come about she'd been hit by this car she was so angry with this driver and I said to her have you, have you forgiven this, uh, this other driver and she said well I think so we led her through this process at the end of it um, she prayed a prayer. She was weeping and crying as she forgave this driver. And I said, um, "What have you not been able to do?" She said, "Well, I said I can't sit on the floor and I can't touch my toes. I haven't been able to for 15 years because I'm just in so much pain." And I said, "Well, let's see what God has done. So why don't you bend down and touch your toes now?" She bent down and touched her to- toes just like that, instantaneously. And what was striking though was her. 15-year-old daughter was at the back of the auditorium and ran to the front and she said I saw a woman dressed like my mother touching her toes and I have never seen my mother touch her toes before in my life and they hugged and embraced as wept. This woman had been totally healed through forgiveness through repenting of that sin of unforgiveness But the reality that Jesus is leading us into is this, that we have been forgiven so much that we need to constantly walk out this spirit of forgiveness wherever we go. Let me read you a story from Corrie ten Boom. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back to me with a rush. The huge room, the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man... I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard in Ravensbrück, where we were sent. But now he was in front of me in a Christian meeting some years later, a hand thrust out, a fine message, message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. 
It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and I could not. My sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking for it? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever ever had to do. I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. So I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness starts as an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you've got to supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm, it sprung into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart, and for a long moment we grasped each other's hands. The former guard, the former prisoner, I had never known God's love as intensely as I did right then. (laughs) This is the journey of forgiveness that we are called to. That we are all called to. And, you know, our, willing, our forgiveness is, is tied to our willingness to forgive others. But I don't know about you, but I love to be forgiven by grace. I don't like to forgive others by grace. Anyone notice this? Someone, a friend of mine, had, he had done something, he had told something that I'd said in confidence to the person I'd said it about, and he caused me one heck of a lot of a mess to clear up. And I knew that, and he came to me to tell me what I already knew, which is what he'd done. So he came to me, and he said, I've done this, and I said, I know. He said, will you forgive me? I said... I will, but just lie down on the floor and let me kick you first, because we'll both feel better. (laughs) He's like, I'll do it, because I'll feel better as well. Anyone ever felt like that? You just want to hurt them first before you forgive them. You just want to freeze them out. You just want to give them the cold shoulder. You just want to hurt them if you could. But that's not how we're called to forgive. Now, forgiveness, Jesus says, must not be surface level but he says notice this he says when you forgive you must forgive from the heart why did he say that because there is a there's an ability to forgive from the head but never let it come from the heart it needs to penetrate to the heart and often I'll pray with people and in our community we've noticed this over the years you'll ask someone have you forgiven so and so something comes up and they'll say yes and then 30 minutes later they're weeping and crying and say maybe I hadn't forgiven them well they had forgiven them but they'd forgiven them from up here it's the start but it's not the termination of forgiveness the termination is forgiveness is when it reaches the heart and I tell you when you know you can get there when you can bless them you know that you've forgiven them and it's got there. When you can honestly, not through gritted teeth, when you can genuinely want the best for them, then you know that you've reached the depths of the heart. Our forgiveness is to extend repeatedly. It's not optional. Uh, Caroline and I in our early marriage had a situation where we had been tricked out of paying an insurance every month. Every month we had to pay. We had hardly any money at the time, or not much money at the time, and we had to pay this thing every month it went out. And I'd signed this thing that we had to pay for five years every month it was going out of our bank. And the worst thing was I used to drive or cycle past this guy's office every day. It's actually illegal what he did now but it wasn't illegal at the time they changed the law after we did it so he had this thing and I knew that he'd come because after we'd signed the mortgage he 
he wasn't almost interested in the mortgage paper. He wanted this insurance paper that I'd signed. He immediately put it in his safe. I thought that was weird. It was only like, but then I worked out how much money it added up to over five years, and I thought, I wonder if I even needed that. And then I looked it up online and realised I didn't need it. And then suddenly I realised we had been conned. Well, I cycled past his office. It wasn't many months later God began to say to me, Simon, will you forgive him? I said, yes, Lord, I will, but burn his office down with him in it because he should not be preying on young married couples. It is a, this is wrong. This is wrong. He knew what he was doing. It's wrong. A few months later, Simon, will you forgive him? I will, Lord, but burn his office. He can escape, but burn his office down because he needs to be out of business. This is wrong. This, how many couples has he done this to? A few months later, Simon, will you forgive him? I will, I will, Lord, but he can keep his office, I guess. But I put him out, put him out of business. At least put him out of business. Simon, will you forgive him? I will, Lord, and I bless his, I bless his business, and I bless him such that he comes to a revelation of you as I have come to that he can receive forgiveness I pray that he would change his life and change his you know this journey that we go on takes a time doesn't it sometimes but we cannot stop until we've reached the heart know that uh, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation reconciliation is restoring relationship it requires repentance of the offender you can't reconcile with someone if they have not repented. You can't. It's impossible. But what you can do is you can forgive. There's a difference between zero. And often people think, well, they won't change. They're not changed. They're doing the same thing. Sometimes people are stuck in the same relationship. They're not changing. And so they can't reconcile. And they think they can't. Therefore, they can't forgive. Well, you can forgive no matter how they respond. No matter whether they change or not, you can forgive. What does Jesus do on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were still doing it. And yet in the midst of it, he forgives them. And the the reality is this. What Jesus says in this parable is if you don't forgive, you lead yourself back over to tormentors. Now, we don't even know what this means, but I do know what it means in one sense. You give the enemy access to your life. It's like you move yourself back from the level of grace, back from the level of mercy, back to the level of law. And when you get back down there, the enemy says, you want the law? I'll give you the law. (laughs) You want justice? I'll give you justice. And the very area where you won't forgive, you almost give him access to your life. And in that place, he starts to wreak havoc with your health, with your finances, with whatever it is, just with your heart. It is amazing, and it affects whole families. We had a lady a couple of summers ago when Rob and I were in France and our family, and um, uh, this lady, she had her father had abused her three sisters, and he'd abused them all, and then he'd left, a divo- he'd left the runaway from the home, left their mother to raise them on her own. He'd come back when they were teenagers, he'd come back and abuse them all again. I mean, she was a mess of anger towards this guy. But in a session like this, she forgave him. And through a lot of tears, she forgave him. Well, we heard sometime later that he had come back again and they had been reconciled with him. He'd become a believer. He'd been an atheist all his life. He'd become a believer. They'd been reconciled and he was reconciling with... I mean, he wasn't going to get remarried, but he'd been reconciling with all the daughters and with the mother after many, many years. I don't know how this stuff works, but when we carry this stuff in our hearts, we allow the enemy to work in our lives and when we forgive, something of heaven begins to open. It's that powerful. 
Our forgiveness must extend to ourselves. You know, some people have the problem they have with this is that they're good at forgiving other people, but they're not good at forgiving themselves. You made a mistake, you made a blunder, you messed something up, and somewhere in there it gets stuck. You know, a friend of ours used to say this, love your neighbour as yourself. If you don't love yourself, God help your neighbour. It's true, isn't it? How many Christians are mean and cantankerous and horrible to the world around? But the root of it is they've never learned to love themselves. And if they would just come to peace with their own lives and their own hearts, they could love the world as Jesus told them to love the world. Forgiveness isn't letting time pass. It's not being a doormat. It's not dependent on feelings, although feelings are involved. But forgiveness is the foundation for living with a free heart. And we need to equip our churches. We need to be equipped ourselves. We need to make churches that are are skilled at walking people through forgiveness. But I don't know about you. Who's got something that they need to forgive from someone from this year? (laughs) I mean, who's got something they need to forgive someone from today? I mean, I I have. Joe beat me in a game. (laughs) You know, it's a constant thing, isn't it? And if we don't have short accounts, if we don't deal with it on an ongoing basis, what happens is sooner or later your heart just gets hard and you almost didn't notice it happened and worship suddenly becomes tough and relationships become strained and you're thinking, how did I get? you know, a few months ago I was how did I get here? Anyone ever noticed that? How did I get here? When so often it's forgiveness that's involved we've got to build and release churches across this nation and the nations that are walking in freedom in this area whose hearts have the foundations of healing there's lots of other things we could say let me just lead you in the process that we have learned This is just a little tool that we have learned that's helpful, it's foundational really for our church in walking people through it and we use this with ourselves and one another. Jesus said this, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, the question then is, how do I forgive from the heart? I want to. How do I forgive from the heart? Well, this is just a little tool we found helpful. Let me tell you the story of a guy. Um, He uh, came to me and he said, he had a wife, two kids, and he came to me and he said, "I, I, I said... I always ask people, what do you want to pray about when, we meet, when I meet with people? And he said, I just don't love my family. I just don't love my family. And I said, what do you mean? You've got a great wife, great kids. What do you mean you don't love me? And he, and he said, I do all the right things. I go through all the right moves. You know, I do, I've read the books. I do the right things. But I just, I just don't... I just don't love them. It's just like I'm turning the handle, but there's nothing on the inside. He said, I can't describe anything like any other way than that. It's like I'm dead on the inside. I just don't know if I'm even capable of loving people. I can read all the marriage manuals and I've read them all and do the things, but it just feels dead. So I said, well, let's talk about your family upbringing. And it very, became very evident that his parents provided for him financially, but they had never, ever given him anything emotionally. They were just, they were just, there was just an emotional void. Never any affirmation, never any hugs, never any, any love, nothing. And so he said, I said, you know, let's, let's start there. Why don't, you, why don't you picture your dad in front of you? We'll start with your dad. Why don't you picture him in front of you? I want you to tell your dad how it felt to be brought up in that environment. He said, okay, I can do that. And, and he said, um, Dad, it didn't feel very nice that you never hugged me or embraced me or told me that you loved me. 
I thought, well, I'm not sure we're getting there. Let's see. So I said, I don't know, you've got a son. Why don't you picture your son in the same situation that you grew up in? How would it feel if you walked in as an adult or, and you observed this, your son, who I think he was about six or something, else, you observed him growing up in the same environment. How would you feel? So he said, okay, yeah, I think I'm going to do that. A bit odd, you know, you know, but I think I'm going to do that. And so he pictures his son there and he says, he walks into the room and he says, Dad, and I'd say, what? It was quite remarkable. He's like, Dad, what is wrong with you? This kid is dying in there. He just needs an embrace. He just needs you to love him. Can't you see what you're doing to him? He is done. You provide all the stuff he needs. You give him money. It's not what he needs. He needs you to love him. He is, he's dying in there. This is killing him. He was crying. There was snot everywhere. It was an absolute mess. I thought, I think we might be getting somewhere. <laughs> Not fishing for emotion, but so often the heart gets locked up, doesn't it? It gets trapped. This stuff calcifies around our hearts and we get locked up in this pain and it never has gotten a way of coming out. So I said, well, in that moment, why don't you, um, why don't you just allow um, the Lord to come and speak to you? And often I'll say, can you see Jesus in that moment? And Because uh, sometimes Jesus just likes to appear and, and talk to people or they hear his voice and... And I think he heard Jesus say something to him. And then and I said, what you want you to do is just imagine a, a cord between you and your dad. And forgiveness needs to cut. I want you to cut that cord. And I want you to release your dad from this stuff that he's done to you. And so he, he cuts the cord. He releases his dad. And I don't, sure, I don't think I did this with him. But another thing I do with people is I often will say to him, Get a, I want you to picture Jesus picture, holding a box. And I want you to put the junk of that forgiveness into that box. All the stuff, all the rejection, all the stuff, put it in the box. And then I say, Jesus is going to absorb that box into his body because that's what he did on the cross, isn't it? He became sin for us. He took all that stuff. And then he's going to give you a box. And I want you to open that box. And opening that box is often very... Jesus often reveals some amazing things to people as they open that box and receive a gift. Because that's what happened on the cross, wasn't it? It was the grand exchange. Just a simple picture to help people visualise what happened. He took our junk and he took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. And then we finished uh, with this, this, this. Once you've kind of gone through this process of cutting and releasing, I said, I want you to, uh, to, to bless your father. Oh, sorry, no, before that, I told him, I said, I want you to speak truth. And he just began to speak truth to himself. You're not alone. You're not rejected. You are love. The Father loves you. Just began to speak truth. And then finally, to bless your, your Father. Just a simple process, a few pictures to help him on the way. Anyway, a few weeks later, I spoke to him. I said, how's it going? He said, he said it's just like I am a different person. He said, I was at work and I was working on my... He said, normally I'm very task-focused. I was working on my keyboard and I saw a picture of my son. And he said, I just started crying. He said, it's never, ever happened before. I was normally like, I'm so in the zone at work. He said, I just started bawling my eyes out. He said, I, I couldn't wait to get home and see my kid. It was like, it was like my heart was alive. And, and, then I, and he said, a few days later, I came home, and, and my wife was already asleep in bed, and he said, I went upstairs, and normally I'm thinking about all the stuff she hasn't done, the washing up that's not done, and I'd come back late. And, and he said, I went up there, and I saw her lying asleep in bed, and I thought to myself, he said, I just started, I burst into tears. And I said, to my, I thought to myself, I love this woman. She is just such a gift from God. I said, well, I think that sounds like it's worth it. <laughs> Something about opening our hearts and saying, God, I don't want to live with unforgiveness anymore. And we need to be equipped. I just feel this is foundational for you guys. As you go into this period of growth, as you see many people saved and added, be equipped to 
renew, live out of a renewed mind and be equipped to help people deal with their broken hearts and you will change the world. You will change the world. You will change the world. We have seen it as we've brought people in, as they've come through these simple steps. It transforms them. They suddenly come alive. Christians who've been Christians for 20 years suddenly fall in love with Jesus again, get their lives turned around and start to live with passion and life again just with a few simple steps.